You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. As we come to God's Word, let's just pause again in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement and equipping that come through your word and are borne out in our lives by your spirit. We pray now uh, that you would encourage us in the life of faith to which you've called us. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We pray that you would Fix our eyes, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, that we might follow more closely after him for having been together around your word this morning. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our scripture passage this morning is Genesis 19. We'll read verses 1 to 29 together. So it's a reasonably long Passage. It's the fairly famous or infamous story, if you like, of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or put differently, and what we'll be focusing on this morning, the rescue of Lot and his family from that destruction. Genesis 19 is on page 19, if you're following along in the Pew Bible. Just to set the context, if you look across the page to page 18, Genesis 18, you'll see there's another famous episode there because um, God just didn't set out to blast Sodom and Gomorrah from the face of the earth, but he decided in verse 17 of chapter 18, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And so he disclosed to Abraham his plan to destroy Sodom. And there followed then that famous intercession of Abraham's in which he pled for the life of Sodom. Should there be even as few as ten righteous found in the city? For as Abraham put it in verse 25, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And so when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home And it's at that moment then that our passage begins in Genesis 19. I'll start reading at verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night And then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? 
Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, Hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to and it is small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well. I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe 
that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. May God bless this, his holy word, to our lives this morning. Well, here's the story, and it's a, a tragic one, of course, and it's one that features these days often in uh, debates and discussions over Christianity and homosexuality, often in the news these days. It's not particularly my interest in looking at the text this morning. It's famous, too, from Jesus using this story uh, in his warning that the coming of the kingdom will be like the days of Noah or the days of Lot when sudden destruction came. And it's that setting in which Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. That's Luke 17, uh, which prompted a, a sermon title I heard recently on the Luke passage, From Sodom to Sodium Chloride, which I thought was just a little cheeky. This story's been lurking in my thoughts for about a, well, a year and a half now, I, when I encountered it just in the course of my daily Bible reading, and uh, it particularly struck a chord, given what was happening in my own life at the time, and it's been something I've been grappling with since. And it has to do with the nature of divine rescue plans, the nature of divine rescue plans. So what we'll do is set a few Questions by way of looking at the background to the story, then looking at the rescues itself. Three quick preliminary questions then. First of all, uh, well, we noticed already when we set the context for the story of Lot and Sodom that it's very much part of Abraham's story. Uh, Abraham pleads for the city, and as you'll have noticed as the passage ends, we end with, not with Lot, but with Abraham. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. So we want to ask a little bit, what does this story have to do with Abraham? And we'll return to that question towards the end. Second preliminary question is, what on earth is Lot doing in Sodom? Well, again, this is a church that reads through the scriptures, isn't it? So uh, you, have you been reading through Genesis so you'll remember, if you cast back your minds to Genesis 13 and 14, that Abraham and Lot lived together. Lot was part of Abraham's household. They had lots of stuff. This occasioned quarrels among their household staff, and they separated ways. And at that point, we read in Genesis 13 that um, Lot pitched his tents near the city of Sodom whose people were wicked and sinning greatly before the Lord, Genesis 13, verse 12. But Lot has since abandoned his tents. He's moved into the city, at least by the time of Genesis 14. And at that moment, the city of Sodom is overthrown in a military campaign. Enemy kings come along, and Lot and his household are carried off. And Abraham and his 318 servants give chase, rescue Lot and his household and his stuff, and they return back to Sodom. So that's once already when Lot's been delivered by Abraham. But you know, uh, I heard a sermon not so long ago from the book of Judges in which the, uh, the preacher said, how much easier it would be to preach on Judges if we didn't have the Hebrews chapter 11. 
You know, Hebrews chapter 11 is the, the gr- chapter of great faith. All these great heroes of the faith who obtained the promises of the Lord and looked on them from afar. And, and there among these heroes of the faith appear some of these deviant and strange characters that were the judges of Israel and judges. And that's a bit of a problem. Well, it's a little bit like that for us looking at Lot because in Peter, in the second epistle of Peter, calls Lot a righteous man whose righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Second Peter 2, verse 8. And it must be so. But all the same, it seems a bit odd, doesn't it, for this righteous man to have settled down and uh, not just to have pitched his tents near Sodom, but to have moved in and taken his place in the city. What is Lot doing there? And what's the problem with Sodom? Last sort of preliminary question. Of course, to us, and in the way that this passage is used in our debates, the passages, the presenting problem is that of this homosexual, deviant sin that all the men of Sodom are intent in participating in. It might seem odd to suggest that's just the symptom of something deeper, but that is in fact the way Scripture itself portrays it. We're fairly fixated on sexual morals and sexual sin and so on in our sexualized age. But this is what Ezekiel has to say about the sin of Sodom. This is Ezekiel 16. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, the other cities of the plain, were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. So as Ezekiel makes plain here, and as Paul makes plain in the first chapter of Romans, the the sexual sin isn't the starting point. It's, It's the outcome of something deeper. Sodom's violent and rampant sexual deviance is a sign of judgment. It's already a sign of judgment because rejecting God's truth and God's ways leads to further distortions and further degradation. So with these three questions in mind, we come then to the story of Lot itself. Two moments of rescue and then their aftermath. Two moments of rescue. The first one has to do, it seems to me, with staying in. God's intention is to destroy Sodom. And so Lot again, as he was in Genesis a few chapters earlier, Lot again is in need of rescue. But it's worth noticing how the scene is set for us. You know, the storytellers of the Old Testament, very terse but very rich, and the detail they give us is invariably significant detail. And did you see what Solomon Solomon, (laughs) what Lot is doing in Sodom. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, verse 1. Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Well, the two angels come on a twofold mission. First of all, they're there to rescue Lot and all all he has, everyone he can bring with him. And secondly, they're there to destroy the city. And Lot is sitting in the gate. 
Now, you might be familiar with the notion that the gateway of the ancient city was the place of, of commerce, the place of privilege, the place of influence, the place oftentimes that served as a kind of court and where justice was dispensed. And there's Lot, sitting in the gateway in the cool of the evening with possibly the great and the mighty of the town. Lot has well and truly settled in to Sodom. It's a little bit like a, the negative counterpart of Psalm 1, isn't it? Do you remember Psalm 1? Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Slightly better put, I think, who settles into the settlement of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, the one who is righteous. This is lot to a T. He is one who has walked in the way of the wicked, who has stood in their counsel, and who has settled right in to the seat of scoffers. Somehow, however, he's maintaining his delight in the law of the Lord, but it must be at the expense of his own inner peace. And certainly now, of his own external safety. Well, the next scene in the passage is notorious, of course. Lot persuades the angels to stay with him. They do. They have a meal of which they share together. Only for every single solitary male of Sodom, the Hebrew is quite explicit, absolutely inclusive, every single one to lay siege to the house demanding sex with these strangers. And clearly, of course, Lot's response to them shows that his own judgment is distorted. He's meeting evil with evil, as one commentator put it. As his intent to salvage his own social status and standing in the city, maintain his honor with his guests, is to throw out his daughters to the baying crowd. It seems for Lot, the habit of complicity is just too deeply ingrained, and that's the only way he can see out of the predicament. His affections, his priorities are seriously disordered. Lot's in danger then of being crushed to death or otherwise dealt with by the mob, and he cannot save himself. And so we have rescue number one. The men, his guests, drag him into the house in uh, verse 10. The men inside reached out, pulled Lot back into the house, and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the door of the house with blindness, so they could not find the door. It's a very special kind of blindness. This is, there's only one other place in the Old Testament where this particular word is used, and it's the story of Elisha, if you remember that story, where the, the army is struck with blindness, but then they're led into another city. So it's a, it's a very supernatural kind of unseeing which they are stricken with. And that moment then in which these angels of the Lord bring Lot back into the house is a moment in which they've saved him. It's a space of grace. And what is that space for? Well, it's not to pack his things and to get the wagons ready. 
He was to convey this word of warning to others. And you notice the instruction. Uh, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out. Lot was saved so that he could convey this word of warning to others. It was, at the same time, a means by which they would ensure that Lot himself had embraced the message that was being given to him, that the Lord is going to destroy this city and also make possible the deliverance of others. And so Lot has night work to do. It's very interesting if you look through this theme in the, across scriptures where those called of God have night work to do. This is in, in the darkness and, and out Lot goes. It's a little bit like Jacob who had night work to do struggling with the angel. It's a little bit like Jesus, who had night work to do in his own struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. And off goes Lot then to his own night's work. And he makes just one attempt, as we read, to his intended sons-in-law. Hurry, get out. The Lord is about to destroy the city. And they just blew him away. They thought, He was joking, seriously underwhelmed by the message of their father-in-law. Well, this first rescue comes with a purpose. We can ask ourselves, should Lot have been in Sodom in the first place? Perhaps not. Uh, But if we were reading the stories of Joseph or of Daniel or of Esther or of others, we'd see a different relationship of person and place. Each one of those, however, living in a context in which they were out of control, they had no control over the events that were unfolding before them. Unlike Lot, who comes to this place by choice, even so, there is for Lot in this moment, this space for grace in which he is able to embrace the message that's given to him and make possible the deliverance of others. So that's a deliverance of one kind and the first moment of deliverance, if you like, in the story. But it's not the only moment of deliverance, and of course it doesn't stop there. There is a second moment, isn't there? Rescue number one was not the ultimate, not the final, solution. And Lot and his family remain in danger because, in their case, destruction was imminent. And that's precisely Jesus' point when he refers to Lot's story in Luke 17. As it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Lot, destruction is coming. And so Lot's night work is not very successful and the morning is coming. And we see that not only are Lot's sons-in-laws not keen on leaving Sodom, Neither is Lot's family. In fact, neither is Lot himself. For all that he embraced the message and took it to his sons-in-laws, he's still not keen on acting on that message. Well, what are we to make of the righteous Lot's delay? He was essentially in agreement with the angels, but he didn't want to go. 
Well, there's a very perceptive commentary on this passage uh, by a guy named Doug Herrink, who is actually writing on Second Peter. He's reflecting on the Lot text in Second Peter, but reflects on this moment in Genesis 19, when uh, morning comes and the angels urge Lot and his family to leave the city. And this is what Herrink writes. Even the sturdiest of the faithful find themselves surrounded on all sides by the strong powers of unrighteousness, destructive cosmic powers, rampant human evil, which is not merely out there, but always also the inclination of the human heart, and the often distorted, damaging, and deadly forms of cultural, social, and political life in which we all participate. Even the most faithful get caught in this kind of web, whether we as individuals or churches are unable to save ourselves. We lack the power and inclination to be disentangled. Harrink goes on, indeed, like Lot, we often do not wish to be delivered from those cities that seem to give and promise so much freedom and life, but that because of their ungodliness are as much places of injustice, destruction, and death. Life, he goes on, on the margins of the city holds little attraction. So the church and its members linger and hesitate and ask whether some realistic compromise might not be possible by which to ease the stark opposition between truth and idolatry, between truth and lie, between righteousness and unrighteousness, to secure our long-term future in the ungodly city. To my mind, that captures Lot's hesitation very well, and in it, a mirror for our own. We need rescuing. But it's a different kind of rescue now, isn't it? Lot is persuaded, but immobile, and is shown mercy. Did you catch that phrase in verse 16? When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand on the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. I wonder if at that moment it felt like mercy. That's the place of all of Lot's fondest hopes and dreams. They're wrapped up in that place that had set him on the path to destruction. And clearly the same is true for Mrs. Lot, as we saw, who really couldn't let it go. John Calvin wrote on this passage, He who ought to have run forth hastily and without delay moves with slow and halting pace. In his person, however, the Spirit of God presents to us as in a mirror our own tardiness. It's not hard to think of the obstacles and impediments facing Lot and contributing to his inability to tear himself away from his beloved Sodom. But his wealth is gone. Ultimately, he's isolated. 
and his own judgment still distorted, no doubt contributes to the distortions of his own daughters. God had assigned a refuge, flee to the mountains, but even that Lot was unwilling to hear. He wanted another city. Can I have one a little bit like Sodom? Just a small city, you heard in his pleading. And so God's deliverance is compromised. It remains a supreme mercy, in fact, that God will save even such a one unwilling to be saved. It was, in fact, this uh, precise connection which made uh, this passage um, take hold of me with such force. Because sometimes we are unwilling and we don't recognize what God's gracious intervention means. We see this in other places in Scripture too, don't we? I'm reminded of the man in John 5 by the pool of Bethesda. Did he really want to be saved? It's hard to, hard to know. Or perhaps when we read the warnings, as I expect you probably do, uh, at the Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians 11. Time after time when we gather around the table, Paul warns the Corinthian church that there are those who for the abuses they have brought to the table, the Lord has brought judgment of illness and even death. But that, to save them from being condemned along with the world. Strikes me that it's quite a bit like being grasped by the hand of an angel and thrust from the city you love. Do we think of death in that context as another form of grace? Can be. It can be. And this, then, is the second moment of rescue. Quite a different kind, and quite a different purpose than the first moment. So one moment of rescue is about staying in and the task to do in that nighttime. A second moment of rescue is about getting out and about knowing the, the greater salvation of God. But there is an aftermath to the story as well. We noted it when we began. The story doesn't end with Lot's expulsion from the city but rather with Abraham returning to the spot where he had spoken with the Lord and pleaded with the Lord to spare Sodom. And so we return there. As we look through Abraham's eyes down at the plain where all he sees is smoke rising like smoke from a furnace. And it confirms to Abraham that God's word was true God's intentions were sure and certain, and the cities, in fact, were destroyed. What's going through Abraham's mind? Does he know what's happened on the plain? Is he wondering what's happened to Lot and his family? We might ask, why was God merciful to Lot? And his family. They were so unwilling. There's one answer in verse 16, as we've seen already. The Lord was merciful to them. It was an act of sheer grace. There's another answer here at the end of the passage in verse 29. 
So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe. He remembered Abraham but brought Lot out. Remember, there was an intercessor. There was someone who had pleaded on behalf of the city and who asked, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Pleaded on behalf of the righteous that they would be delivered, even if there was only ten. In fact, there weren't ten. There weren't even four. Doesn't seem, perhaps, that there was even one. Abraham's intercession, though, went as far as this, that in God's patience and mercy, there was a disclosing of determination of judgment, in itself a sign of grace, so that deliverance would be possible. And so it was, again, in our sin, in our weakness, in our utter impotence to save ourselves, or even even to recognize our need of saving, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That was intercession of a different kind, wasn't it, Jesus, in the garden? But this is Jesus still interceding on the behalf of those who deserve no mercy. We had a hint of it from Romans 8 earlier. We read later in Romans 8, Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. This is what the Lord Jesus lives and does. This is a member of the Free Church of Scotland, isn't it? I have it on good authority. So you'll all be familiar with your Westminster Shorter Catechism, won't you? Yes, I'm sure you will. So when I say, what is the answer to question 25? It will spring immediately to your mind and to your lips. How doth Christ execute the office of a priest? How doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, to reconcile us to God, and in making continual intercession for us. And in making continual intercession for us. And so we have one who intercedes, one who is greater than Abraham, who by his intercessions, I believe, God heard and gave a space of grace to Lot to save yet others. And when that rescue mission failed, saved Lot physically, dragging him from the city, but who brought a yet greater salvation. Do you need saving today? I feel like I need saving today. We have an intercessor who did not just attempt to, to turn 
wrath aside on behalf of a righteous few, but who himself took that wrath by laying down his life and ensured that we could live. Yet even God's people get caught up and meshed in commitments, in contexts, in relationships, in lifestyles from which we need rescuing. Let's give thanks to God for an intercessor who prays for us. And if it's God's grace to us that we experience that first moment of salvation, that salvation that is about staying in, let's embrace the message that God has given us and use that moment of grace to share that word with others. Perhaps not in the way that Lot did. Perhaps Lot hadn't lived the life that would give a sense of truth to the message that he was sharing with his sons-in-law. The Lord's about to destroy the city. (laughs) They didn't take it seriously. Are our words and our lives so integrated so that our lives speak a truth, the same truth that our words speak? It could be, however, that there is another kind of rescuing, a rescuing that gets us out. It's a question I ponder myself. Are there contexts from which I need this kind of rescue to get out? May God give us the clarity of sight, the courage of heart, the faith in him to know that even in his judgments there is the moment for grace, to know that we have in our Savior one who is interceding for us. And if the angels grasp the hand of Lot and his family to take them from Sodom, how much greater a rescue when our Savior grasps us by the hand to take us with him. Lord, even so, do your work in our lives. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our gracious God, when we look at a passage like this, we're tempted, especially tempted by the cities in which we've made our peace, to think that you are a hard God. Oh, Father, forgive us, for you are a God of grace, and in your, even in your judgments, you provide that space for divine rescue. We pray that by your Spirit, you would grant each of us the eyes to see your call and claim on our lives, to grasp the hand that you have reached out to us in your Son to be our Savior and Redeemer, and to walk faithfully with him, sharing the good news that you are indeed the God who saves. And so we give you thanks through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. 
visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.